Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Flynn. Doctor? Doctor? Doctor. <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. Um, Scott Flynn is with uh, Corteva AgriScience. Uh, you're... What is it? your zonal biology leader? That's that's impressive. It sounds that, really impressive, doesn't it? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a, a zonal biology leader um, w- within within Corteva. We usually have responsibility overseeing the biology uh, planning and budgeting for a certain certain area. So I uh, am responsible for overseeing the uh, the planning and budgeting for um, pasture and land management research. Uh, across North America, so, nice small territory. Yeah, nice, nice small te- territory for sure. I mean, the acreage of rangeland and pasture versus the acreage of any other crop. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> compared, we we kind of dwarf everyone else in land use, and you don't exactly concentrate in any one geographical region. It, n- not at all. It seems uh, you know. I, I tell people that. Uh, even as a field scientist, the areas of uh, the country that I'm responsible for, you go to the most extreme western portion, and it's less than 10 inches of rainfall. You go to the most extreme eastern portion of where I uh, I do my research, and it's 50, 55 inches of rainfall a year. So, you know, it's, it's quite diverse. Mm. Uh, and yet there's some commonalities that we'll talk about as we go along. Um, but you are from, your roots are in Eastern Kentucky, correct? Yes, Eastern Kentucky. And I think I think a lot of people, when I tell them that, the first thing they think of is these days is hillbilly elegy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I've, heard, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, the book Hill, Hillbilly Elegy, and, and they ask me about it. And um, some of the people from my neck of the woods, they'll say, oh, no, that doesn't sound like it at all. And I'm like, well, well, where I grew up, you know, I identify with some of those folks. I think I might have even known a family like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you didn't grow, did you grow up on a farm or rural with some kind of food producing practices, but not really agriculture? Or what would you describe your background? So it's really interesting. My my grandfather, um, he he pretty much built the farm that I grew up on, and so he was very innovative. That he he started out he couldn't read, <laughs> and I think over time my grandmother taught him to read. He became more and more involved in um, uh, extension, uh, working with the extent, county extension groups or the county extension agent. Um, but he slowly began began to build his business, his his farm, um, and he accumulated land. He also uh, had eleven children to help take care of that land. Uh, my my father being one of them. Um, so uh, when he died, he kind of broke up the farm and he gave each 
um, each child a, a portion of the farm. Now to put this into perspective for you, this was a big farm back in the back at the time for that part of Kentucky, but it was it was probably somewhere between 100 and 150 acres. All right, so you know it didn't. Uh, there wasn't a lot of butter to spread over the toast. So <laughs> we had our pl our plot of land. Um, I think in, in total we had about thirty acres, and half of that was forested. The rest of it was what we would call a floodplain, um, and um, that's what we that's what we farmed. Now the type of agriculture we were involved in, uh, we we of course we made hay, uh, we grew tobacco on that small plot of land. Um, my father was more interested in the tobacco aspect because uh, it's a really high yielding, high profitable crop on a per acre basis. And, you know, even on a 13 acre farm, you could, you could grow um, a few thousand pounds and it would be enough to make for a nice Christmas and pay your taxes. And, and you know, is a nice little bump in, in the fall of the year. I, on the other hand, I was more interested in the pastures. I loved working with the cattle um, and my, um, my uncles, they were all involved in cattle production. And it just, uh, I don't know, it just kind of set, you know, really stuck with me. So going to college, you know, and, and getting a degree in agriculture, of course, I got into the animal science classes first off. And then a professor kind of grabbed me and he said, you know, he said, um, you might be interested in taking my, my forages class. And that moment, I kind of fell in love with the relationship between forages and, and, and animal production. And so I pursued my career from there. But my, as far as farming goes, I came from a very small farm. I came from a, a very deeply rooted um, agricultural family. Uh, you know, they were all connected back to that original farm that my grandpa started, hmm. um, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Hmm. And um, the, the the pattern of of land from you know grandparents to parents to children uh, is is a difficult one these days for reasons that we'll probably get into. Um, and so, people who have any kind of roots in agriculture. Um, maybe that's most of the people that are still in agriculture have roots as opposed to new people coming in. Mm -hmm. But it's important for people to understand that there's a lot of careers in agriculture in addition to farming or ranching directly. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. So you went from Eastern Kentucky to a place that I spent a little time at, University of Kentucky? That's right. Uh, I went to Eastern Kentucky University and I got a, a general uh, ag degree, but my focus was more on, you know, forage animal production with a minor in business. And then I went on to the University of Kentucky and actually studied under your major professor, too. Of course, we're a few years apart, but Dr. Chuck hey, Doherty. Hey, 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 hey. hey. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> but, uh, and that's, the, you know, Chuck really instilled a lot of... Um, a lot of knowledge in me. And, and also, uh, you know, I, I dare to say he kind of helped open up a part of my mind on just creative thinking, creative problem solving. Uh, I used to tell people that it wasn't necessarily the classes that I had. It was 
uh, sitting around and having coffee with coffee with him in the morning and listening to him tell stories about, you know, research or about his days, you know, in, in New Zealand. So uh, he's he's one that I look at and say, you know, he's one of my biggest inspirations. Indeed. Um, yeah, there's a there's a few of those people and, and I try to tell them so uh, occasionally just um, so. From there, you went to Iowa State University. That's that's right. Uh, so after after I graduated from the University of Kentucky, I spent a year working as a, um, a, a research uh, analyst. I think is what they referred to that position at at the time. Um, and then I went on to Iowa State, where I started working on my PhD in crop production and physiology. So, from at what point did you become interested in the so my my personal journey went from intending to study a pasture weed control problem at the University of Kentucky i came under the influence of carl hovland my last little bit at georgia and kind of changed when i got to to uh, Kentucky and and found Chuck and worked on a different project. Mm -hmm. So how did you become interested in this area of vegetation management? Was it out of problems that you were seeing in grazing management, pasture forage management, or was there something else that uh, spurred you to look at that? I think when I, I got ready to, uh, to to graduate with my PhD, I was looking around for options, and um, it, this was in 2011, and and things looked pretty bleak in the university system. That's where I always kind of viewed myself as being a university researcher, and so as I'm looking around at what the opportunities are, I, I come across a position with Dow AgriSciences and um, uh, looking at range and pasture research, specifically looking at um, weed control. Now, Peter, I have never found a subject in agriculture that I couldn't jump on and 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 really take a liking to. Uh, and so after I interviewed him, I got to ask my questions. I, I realized that there is just a, there's a, a lack of information on how weeds affect the production of our grazing operations. Um, you know, there's so many questions to be answered. And I, I kind of look at it like this. It's like the early days of figuring out that nitrogen uh, stimulated grass growth. And then there was this, all this research to do nitrogen rate studies and timing studies. And, and that's the way I kind of look at, uh, at weed management. Now, there's so much that we don't know about how do we optimize production and, and, and what gives us our best bang for our buck. In, in terms of, of, of management. So that's kind of where it all started. I, I saw the potential there of, of what could be uh, what could be done. Yeah. So let's, I, there are terms that I know people hear and let me just throw them out and we can talk about them. They're native plants. There are introduced species and there are invasive species. So, some people want to put all value on native and assume that introduced are of lesser importance. Mm -hmm. And then I don't think there's an appreciation sufficient on the 
the burden, if you will, or or the cost of invasive species. Mm-hmm. So you right. want to talk a little bit about those? Uh, sure. Uh, and and I'm, I'm coming from a Midwest uh, perspective here. But, you know, native species, I, I when people say native, the first thing I think of is pre-settlement. These are the species that I would expect to find uh, pre-settlement before anybody <laughs> um, maybe came over in a boat with some seeds and decided to, to, to plant them. Um, and we look at the western U.S. and a lot of our rangeland is composed of these native grasses and what uh, we'll, we'll term as native forbs, these flowering, uh, these flowering plants. Um, when we start talking about introduced species, uh, they may have been brought here uh, over time to, uh, to to maybe help with production in a certain way or because they had a particular growth habit. And we look at a lot of cool season grasses in the eastern U.S. Those are introduced species uh, that have a, give us a lot of benefit. They increase our production per acre, um, uh, given their growth habit, their tolerance to disease. Um, so those, those species end up getting, getting introduced. Now, not to say that all cool season grasses are introduced, but we, we, a lot of them that we do use, uh, nowadays are, uh, are introduced. Um, now when we introduce a plant, <laughs> sometimes it doesn't behave itself and it gets, it gets out there, um, and, and gets into trouble. And, and we might refer to that to an, as an invasive plant. Now you can have a plant that is very beneficial. Uh, and is very important to us, but it can also be invasive. And you know, uh, uh, one of the uh, species or a couple of species that come to my mind are tall fescue and smooth brown grass. You love them in certain parts of the country, but in other parts of the country, in certain situations, you don't want to have anything to do with them. So they become um, uh, invasive. Um, I would even dare to say that some native plants in the United States, if 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 not uh, in the right location, can actually become invasive as well. You know, when they get into those areas, and 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 maybe start causing us trouble. But I'm going to add another layer onto this, and that, and I'm going to talk about noxious weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, noxious weeds. Um, they are plants that usually have uh, some economic repercussions if they're not controlled or environmental repercussions and uh, noxious weed laws are put into place by the state. And those states, uh, they will put in mandatory um, uh, mandatory uh, uh, rules that say that you have to control those by a certain time period or when identified or the state will come in and, and actually control that for you. And So that's yeah. kind of the whole spectrum there. <laughs> yeah, so I... I jokingly say that uh, forage scientists have a history of introducing weeds. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not sure where Johnson grass came from, but it, um, we could look at kudzu. We could look at, um, and, and I really wish I still had that. And maybe someday I'll, I'll look in somebody's archives, but uh, USDA, um, Maybe it was a soil conservation, eh, probably a little early for that. Um, but this this researcher had been spending all his time trying to figure out how to figure out the agronomics of kudzu. Mm-hmm. Um, he was looking at it as a wonderful plant for the southeast, high protein content, da 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 mm-hmm. da. And in 
bold all cap letters at the bottom of the back page. He said, there's absolutely no danger of kudzu becoming a weed. <laughs> it, and now we know otherwise. Oh, or at least in those places when it can run away and get into the woodlands where um, the th obviously he was focusing on how easy it was to overgraze or kill it by cutting too frequently and those sorts of, and he couldn't imagine it running off into the woods and infesting right. all the acres it has. Um, so, uh, okay. Economic impact from weeds. What could that possibly be? Well, you know, we have this mutant plant called daughter, which is one example, right? That's a bizarre plant that actually parasitizes other plants. And which weed, I guess, is another, which actually there's quarantines on those counties where it still exists and they take extreme measures to try to control it. But some of the others that we might think of and also the impact on livestock, because I, I too often, uh, it kind of gets back to the idea of you drive by the pasture and it looks nice and green. It looks great until you get out and walk across it and look down and see how open it is. Or you see how much of that green is actually forage as opposed to something right. that the animals won't eat. So we probably ought to talk about that a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I uh you know, people will ask me, they, they think they're going to get, you know, really um, clever. They're going to be like, well, tell me what a weed is. <laughs> and I say, well, you know, a, a weed is, uh, a, you know, something that's in a place where it, we don't really want it to be. Um, and in pastures, there are a lot of plants out there that um, the animals don't want out there. They don't want to, they don't want to graze. Um, and those really don't contribute to you know our production per acre. Um, I also look at weeds as the, the more the infestation grows, the more pressure the animals put on the good parts of the field and we start um, seeing a decline in those desirable forage species. And that's especially true out west where we've seen certain weed species just try to you know get in our rangelands because of preferential grazing. And all of a sudden, you know, this, it kind of snowballs out of control and the animals go from grazing a thousand acres down to what would be uh, maybe 500 acres because of all the land resources that they once had being overtaken by this uh, invasive plants. And so uh, I joke sometimes I say it's biblical that weeds beget weeds as more weeds encroach into uh, uh, an area, it forces animals into the better areas of the field, which weakens them and then makes a, a nice, uh, you know, uh, uh, place for a, a, an invasive plant to take root. And, and so what would be some examples of those invasive weeds that you just referenced on rangeland? Uh, you know, one that I think about all the time is yucca. Now, yucca is a, uh, I believe yucca is, is native to the Western US, uh, but yucca has kind of uh, just exploded out of control in certain areas. Now the buffalo used to keep that stuff down. They would, they would, they would really put a hurting on, on yucca popul populations, but cattle, um, because of some mechanical barriers, I would call them, you know, the, just the toughness, the spikiness of, of yucca, 
they they tend not to graze. And so I have seen areas um, that used to be grassland just overtaken by yucca plants. Um, I guess the other one that I think about all the time is is uh, eastern red cedar. Um, I it's about a decade ago I was talking with a scientist and he said that um, through uh, remote sensing studies that he had conducted um, that he would estimate there's about 750 acres a day lost <laughs> to encroachment of eastern red cedar just popping up you know growing larger so the footprint of that that plant growing um, on a on a daily basis. Uh, so those are the, the invasive plants that I think of a lot of times that have kind of swallowed our grazing potential uh, in the western U.S. Yeah. In the eastern U.S., uh, you, it's like, which one do you want to choose? A spiny pigweed, which is a thorny species that if an animal wanted to eat it, uh, chances are they wouldn't make it too far afterwards because of the spikes, um, mm -hmm. you know, puncturing certain vital uh, organs in that animal. And as a matter of fact, we have seen that before where an animal gets hungry and that's the only thing it has and actually consumes those spines and, and ends up dying. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of these plants out there that invade our uh, grazing lands that, that really cost us. And, and sometimes there's toxicity as well as the mechanical injury, um, as well as I just don't want to eat that or it's too coarse or what have you. Yeah, that, uh, there are a lot of plant species out there um, that are well known for being toxic, you know, even at small amounts uh, with animals. We deal with one here in the Midwest, uh, especially the farther south we get, uh, called perilla mint. And usually animals that ingest perilla mint, they, they usually don't last more than just uh, a few hours. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have those plants that we have to monitor in our pasture and make sure that they don't take up any significant space. Now, the, the great thing about these poisonous plants is usually they're, they deter animals just based on their smell or, or, you know, some other, uh, characteristic. Uh, and if animals have enough forage to graze, they'll usually ignore those, but, in these grazing systems where we're just overgrazing and or we get into a drought situation, all of a sudden that becomes uh, appealing to that animal. And so they'll go and preferentially graze uh, or they will go in and graze those areas out of necessity and we end up losing, losing animals. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to admit to a bias and I'll let you correct <laughs> my misapprehension, but um, it, it, it's been my perspective that many times weed problems can be a symptom of management issues and reaching for some means of chemical control without looking at all of the management issues isn't likely to be your best investment, nor is it likely to give you long-term um, control of that problem is is am i just spent I too much time in oregon or what no you're, you're spot on um i i tell producers a lot of times if, if you find yourself in the need to apply a herbicide every year you chances are you don't have a weed problem you've got a grazing management problem that that's leading to that um and, and so when we, we look at row crop producers you know, there's really nothing there to keep 
uh, weeds down naturally other than the vegetation that's growing there or maybe the, the stubble. So we see those populations of weeds coming back year after year after year. And we kind of expect we're going to have to do something about them or we're going to lose production. However, uh, in, in grazing systems, because we're dealing a lot of times with perennial uh, uh, forages or you know perennial plants in general, uh, just their growth cycle, if we manage those, um, those plant communities in a way that allows them to thrive, allows them to you know, maintain a certain height and a certain density, they'll actually hold out weeds. Weeds only come into our grazing systems when given the opportunity uh, through weakening the stand or disturbing the area uh, physically. Um, so when producers find themselves, cattle producers in particular, you know, ones I deal with, uh, when they find themselves in the same weed problem year after year, it points to the need for changing that grazing system. Uh, once we make that decision to change that grazing system and that we're going to, you know, we're going to support better growth and development of our, our perennial forages, a herbicide application could come in and turn that around very quickly and put you on the right path. Um, but unlike row crop producers, uh, given that the, the profitability per acre, if you come in and have to do a herbicide application year after year after year, you're really looking at, um, um, at, at increasing your overhead cost and making it more difficult to, to turn a profit. Yes. And uh, as I said several times, I, I, I've realized I have a menagerie of pet peeves by this point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm just uh, far too many. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm the, the cat lady of, of peeves here. Um, but one of them is forages have traditionally in this country been consigned to the quote marginal agricultural lands, right? Um, and you could talk about that term, um, and given marginal management at best, and then people stand back and go, well, it's a marginal return. And part of me is like, well, let's put the corn there and give it the same level of poor management and see what kind of returns we get. Um, so we, we have to get our minds to the point of being grass farmers wherever we are that's our crop and now but we have the added complication of converting it into a saleable product and doing it and it's a perennial crop and we got to take all that into account and you know we also have to be concerned about other aspects of the environment in which we're doing this so it's this tremendously complicated system, delightfully so, I'd suggest. But too often, I don't think that level of respect is given for this branch of agriculture. No, you're, you're exactly right. I think uh, when we look at agriculture in general, um, but particularly with, with uh, our cattle producers, I think people sometimes look at it as, um, maybe more of a service than a business. <laughs> and, you know, the, the way I put that into perspective here, uh, imagine you walked into your favorite big box store and they only had 50% of their shelves stocked with an item. That's a lot of lost potential. 
Uh, our pastures are the same way. They have a certain amount of potential. And given land prices and just the cost of living today, um, it's really difficult to go out and, and manage an operation um, and not put forth, um, uh, you know, effort to maximize production on that particular acre. Um, and, and so that, you know, that's kind of concerning to me when I, when I talk with people and, and maybe they don't quite understand the, the whole the whole system. Um, you know, the other thing is, I think a lot of people believe that cattle ranchers are sometimes these multi-billionaires, uh, like you would see on the, you know, the, the series uh, Yellowstone. You know, they're these multi-millionaires. And the truth is, a lot of our, um, our cattle operations in the U.S. are family-owned, and usually, you know, only involve three or four people. Uh, the average beef uh, herd size in the U.S., a cow-calf herd size, is I think between 40 and 45 animals. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of those small ranchers out there that are trying to manage these, these operations. And I think sometimes people just get the wrong idea about, you know, who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Um, again, the I I told this story, and and Danny, I'm sorry, but it was a memory that will is burned into the back of my brain. Um, uh, this very muscular gentleman came running down the aisle toward the microphone, and after I gave a presentation and I was making sure he stopped at the microphone because I didn't know which way I should run. Um, and I was pretty sure it wouldn't be far. Um, and he just, he asked you, wait, 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 you mean that a cow doesn't spend its whole life in a cage eating nothing but corn? Um, so there is this mis tremendous misunderstanding and, and Danny, you know, I love you. Um, He's not unique in that. Um, we, we have this, um, for a number of reasons, this miscommunication. But you've been talking and focusing on, well, let's, let's take it one step at a time. Let's look at something that many people hear about, but I don't think enough people understand or appreciate. So if I say sustainability to you, what does that mean to you? What, what would you focus on in talking with ranchers about sustainability metrics? Uh, yes, that's a, that's, a really good, uh, uh, that's a really good question. And this, this is one of my pet peeves, Peter. Uh, I was listening to a podcast and it was on sustainability and I listened for a half hour to a uh, a person who is supposed to be, you know, <laughs> an expert in this industry, talk about sustainability. And at about a half hour into it, I realized that this person had no idea what sustainability meant to him. Uh, and he was just using it as a bu buzzword. And it really annoyed me. And so I started thinking, you know, how do we define sustainability um, for our beef cattle operations? And so this is the way I break it down. Uh, sustainability and an and environmental, from an environmental perspective, is about um, managing that land 
to maintain the soil resources, the vegetation resources, so that there is no drop in production or no drop in potential uh, from the time you've managed it to your kids and so on and so forth. If that system is protected, it's a perfect circle, if you will, of, of use and, uh, and, and production. And then on the other end, we have economic sustainability. Managing that operation and utilizing those resources so that you can support your family. And that's where cattle production, in my opinion, that's where they need to focus at in terms of sustainability. Taking care of the land and keeping it productive for years to come, but managing it in a certain in such a way that you accomplish those goals and can turn a profit to support your family. So sustainability for a beef producer or a cattle producer has to take into account environmental and economic. If you go strictly environmental and say, I'm gonna turn it back to the wild, guess what? There's really not a lot of profit that you can make. And you have to ask yourself, uh, can I afford to be a farmer if I'm not using my land, you know? Uh, so that's how I, I view sustainability for, for beef producers. I think we have to be very clear that we, uh, we identify those two pillars that are gonna determine how long that land's gonna be around and if it's gonna be able to, um, to, to, to take care of future generations as far as an income goes. Well, and, and we could add on to that the societal leg of that tripod and say that proper management of grazing lands contributes to societal good. The, the managers are not compensated for that yet. I don't know how much I want to advocate for that, but at least acknowledge it, please. And then, of course, you know that one of my soapboxes would be that the product of that is essential for human nutrition. So in, in many ways, there are all of these facets. One that we might just briefly talk about is that proper management of grazing lands and fire suppression, um, wildland fires. And so some of these weedy species that come in and through mm -hmm. any number of reasons come to dominate now become fuel loads that feed fire that then becomes yeah. a, a catastrophe for people. Uh, you uh, you know you hit on a good point about just uh, the management of of um, of our grasslands. Um, the the buffalo used to keep things in check. You know we think there's somewhere between forty million and seventy million buffalo probably uh, in the North America. Um, uh, you know well in, in North America in general, um, and those animals were grazing. They were really pounding down certain parts of. Um, our, our rangeland, uh, and that acts as certainly as as fire suppression. Um, we have large chunks of land out there that we don't have the uh, stocking density on to keep the vegetation down, or we've given it over to weed pressure, uh, and those have become fire hazards. Uh, so you know we we do see occasionally that these fires get out of control and. Um, it caused a lot of issues. So, you know, the, the, the grazing management aspect, especially in the Western U.S., uh, can be very important for, for controlling um, wildfires. On the flip side here, though, 
the producer themselves, the rancher themselves, sometimes they want to light these fires to, uh, I guess, take down that vegetation, doing it in a controlled manner or doing it on your terms and not Mother Nature's terms yeah. uh, to make those more productive, yet do it in a way that, that doesn't cause widespread destruction. Well, yeah, just, just as the buffalo were part of that evolved system, so was fire. And in fact, fire was an indigenous tool from what I read in books like um, 1491 by Charles C. Mann, which mm -hmm. is one of the ones that I recommend to people that for whatever reason, whether it was lightning strikes or whether it was human caused, fire would frequently burn these areas. And in fact, I've seen maps that show the the from the first immediately prior to European contact and then subsequently some of the marginal areas of prairie where the the climate is sufficient to allow woody plant encroachment that those areas grew in size once the indigenous management was suppressed for any number of reasons um, and actually the amount of prairie, quote unquote, shrank. Um, and and I, in addition to the bison, it, um, I had never thought of elk as being a prairie animal. Right. It's only because the mountains are the only place that they can still live, essentially. And But they used to also be spread across the continental United States. So... Um, a, a tremendous amount of of life um, supported by this grassland resource. And we've been talking about North America, but we do need to at least acknowledge that there are these grassland biomes across the across the globe, and they're tremendously important in some places. They've really been abused. Um, clearly in North America, much of them have been converted into crop. And so we get rightly concerned about the conversion of rainforest. Um, but meanwhile, we also have this biome that has in some areas been converted to a greater degree. Um, and, and somehow it doesn't receive the respect it deserves. Um, what do you got against grandpa's way of doing things? What, what's this? You're knocking grandpa. I mean, I heard you talking, you know, respectfully about yours. And now you're saying that grandpa's way may not be good enough. What do you mean by that? Yeah, this this goes to something, go back to something that I've, I've heard over the past 20 years uh, working with, with producers. And you'll be having a conversation about maybe changing a management practice and you'll hear, well, my dad never did it that way, or my grandpa said to do it this way. And I think like any area of science or any area of uh, business, things change that come along that revolutionize the way you do that, or management practice come, comes along that, um, that in, improve your profitability or improve your production. And when I run into those producers that have that, well, grandpa didn't do it that way. And I'm certainly not going to do it if he didn't do it that way, because he was a smart man. Um, it, it, it concerns me. It's 
And I, I always said, it's not that your grandpa was not an intelligent person or he was not working to the best of his ability with what he had. It's that things have come along that have improved the way we manage our operations that we need to take advantage of. Uh, and and that's, that's what's important to stress. Now, in a grazing situation, uh, I think it's very important that we don't graze the way grandpa did. Um, we often think about turning cattle out into an area and they have, well, free range. They can go <laughs> and, and, and graze any part of the field. Uh, the, the animal's in charge of where they graze and how they graze. In a good grazing management system, when we control the animal and we put them, confine them to a smaller area and have them utilize that more evenly and provide adequate rest for that area over a period of time, what we do is we increase the, the production of that, that piece of land. See, animals, as you well know, cattle in particular, or cattle, they preferentially graze certain areas and they leave other areas alone. It's kind of like going to uh, a buffet. And if I were to turn my kids loose and say, hey, go up to the buffet and get whatever you want, they would come back with dessert, you know, <laughs> and they would ignore everything else. But, you know, it's that first plate is controlled by mom and I. You go in and, and this, this is what you're going to have. And after you do that, I'll let you go up there and pick out whatever you want for dessert. That's kind of the way we have to, to, to treat cattle in order to maximize production. I think grandpa's way, um, and not every grandpa's this way, but was to have the animals out there in the field. They would have calves whenever, you know, <laughs> they, they hit the ground. There was no control over the grazing season. And those, those systems today are leading to very poor return on investment. And in some cases, Peter, our producers are farming the way grandpa did, and they're have, they have to work off farm in order to support their farming habit. They have jobs in town to support their farming habit. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to they never graduated from grandpa's way, and they never looked at this, these, these new management practices or these, these new species that can actually increase their production per acre. So just some of the basic technology that would be available today, as opposed to let's just set the date in 1960s, because I don't think in the 60s we had high tensile, low impedance energizers, high tensile fencing. We didn't have temporary fencing to give us the flexibility. So subdivision meant barbed wire fence or hog wire or you know whatever. So there were certain things that we didn't have the technology to do, and now we've gotten more and more and more, um, as well as this attitude of saying, how much do I want there? How many animals do I want on? How big an area for how long? And then move them off so that I, that, that's all kind of, some parts of the world, it's very well established. Our part of the world, I think not so much, um, in part because we've been blessed with a lot of resources and we've been blessed with close by um, um, markets. Some mm -hmm. parts of the world, you basically have to export to get to your market. That adds even more cost into the system. 
Um, so, and, and there are some other, you've mentioned it already, but I think it, we need to put the point on it that given a choice, an animal will regraze the same area and will avoid marginally less attractive species, let alone stuff that you wouldn't want them to eat. But I mean, the animals have preference. They like the shorter, but, but it's got to be long enough to get their tongue around it. And, but that's not going to be long enough for the plant to regenerate its energy reserves. And so you're weakening the plant and that creates the opportunity for uh, less desirable plants to come in. And that sort of becomes a spiral. In addition, you have nutrients being not just cycled between the soil, the plant, the animal back to the soil, but maybe it's the soil up under the trees as opposed to the soil out in the place where you want it to be because that's where it can grow uh, forage. All of those things then become issues. Um, uh, hay feeding. Uh, have, I've, I've got a figure in my head and I don't know that this is right, but I heard, I think I heard somebody saying that as much as three quarters of the costs in, you know, nationwide, three quarters of the costs in cow-calf operations are supplemental feed. I, I wouldn't doubt it at all. Or feeding costs or something uh, of that nature. And, and so without the ability to reserve some areas for grazing after the growing season, then you're going to be feeding hay for longer. And what's it cost to put up a ton of hay? And is that really the best use of your land and your time and your capital to, to make hay as opposed to buy it from somebody who's making hay? Or in our part of the country, we have alfalfa hay being shipped west to the dairy farmers. And then we have those trucks backhauling seed straw to the beef cattle. And tall fescue seed straw, right? I mean, that's the residue from the seed crop, but it can have a significant amount of regrowth in it by the time they get it bailed off. And its feed value is better than a lot of grass hay is. Mm -hmm. And it's cleaner, less weed content. Um, and, and so it works for the trucker because he's got to load both ways. And so those sorts of opportunities exist, but people have to be looking at things maybe in a newer way. Like you say, doesn't mean grandpa was wrong then. Um, I do remember one story, the, the company that I work for sells varieties of tall fescue that were selected for softer leaves. And so out on the coast, um, one son was planting these for his dairy pasture and his father just like, I mean, grandpa planted Alta fescue. I've spent my life trying to kill what grandpa planted, and now you're planting tall fescue. It's, it's, it's not the same plant. It's not the same animals. It's not the same economics or market. You've made the point about the value of the land versus the production 
potential of the land and talk a little bit about how balanced or not those fact that those are. Yeah. So I had a economics teacher one time that said, if you, if you wanted to get into farming, there were three ways you could do it to, to really, you know, turn a profit uh, or to make, you know, to, to keep your family supported. One is you had to marry into it. Uh, two, you had to either maybe inherit it. And the third option was to win it in a card game. And, <laughs> you know, those that's kind of extreme. Um, but there's there's a little bit of uh, truth to, to what he said. Um, if we look at what the price per acre uh, of grazing land sells for in the U.S., it varies. I mean, you can go to certain parts of the country and it'll be a few hundred dollars an acre. You can go to other parts of the country and it may be uh, two to three thousand, maybe even four thousand dollars an acre. However, I, I recently heard a statistic and you, I, I'm going to task you with looking this up. But if you look at uh, the investment per acre relative to animal cost or animals uh, production, it's basically the same. So it's based on that lands. Uh, it it kind of relates back to that lands productivity. Uh, so it costs just as much to um, own land or to to support an, a cow in the western U.S. on ten acres as it does to own land for that one acre that's going to produce that same cow here in the eastern U.S. Because the you know the carrying capacity. Um, other the potential for that land differs so much. So, you know, you can get fewer animals per acre. So this is where the problem comes in, um, in, in my, uh, my opinion. If we look at cost per acre to go out and buy a, a, a ranch, a grazing operation, we have to be able to stock that at a high enough rate in order to make the payments. And I was putting together some numbers a few years ago, and these are based on on, on Midwest um, land prices. Say I get, give twenty five hundred dollars an acre for a a nice pasture land, uh, 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 pastured farm here in Missouri, and I were to go out and I were to stock it the way Grandpa did, I'm just going to allot an uh, you know an animal unit for every two and a half three acres. Now that sounds crazy to wet people in the Western US who can't do that, but here that's kind of normal. You know, having a mature cow per every uh, two, maybe three acres. However, if you looked at the profitability of that cow-calf operation at that stocking rate, you would never make the payments on that farm. It's impossible. Unless you've got some marijuana growing on the backside of the farm to help you support that, Alone, that operation cannot support that. Now, go on to that same plot of land that Grandpa would have told you to stock at this particular, uh, you know, stocking rate, and implement some good grazing strategies where you're going to rotationally graze and you're going to, you know, support regrowth of 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 the grass. You're going to give ample, you know, rest period, and those animals are always going to have access to high quality forage. Now we take that one animal unit per, per three acres, and now we're getting an animal unit per, per acre. And in that situation, it becomes much easier to make the payments on the farm 
when you've purchased it for $2,500 an acre than it is, uh, you know, doing it grandpa's way. And that's something I see as a big concern in, in the future for um, young uh, people in agriculture who want to get into that business, but they don't inherit it. They, they don't, you know, marry into it and they are terrible at cards. <laughs> They're going to have to optimize their production in order to be able to pay for the current land costs. Yeah. And it, it may be that in some areas, a stalker operation is a better return than the cow-calf operation for a number of reasons. Um, also, I think that if you look at some parts of the country where population growth and spread out into rural more rural landscapes, and especially here as a result of what we've been going through lately, where a number of people are discovering they don't have to go into the city to work. They can, you know, work from wherever, so long as they have connectivity and whatever. They suddenly land is worth something that's not tied to its agricultural productive potential. And that'll be an additional um, pressure against um, pastoral systems and, and, and grassland. It's, uh, I think it might be called the donut effect. You have a city center okay. and then the rural areas outside of that become very high valued. Uh, and, and, you know, 50 miles beyond that, all of a sudden it becomes a little more easy to, to purchase, but it's too far out to truly manage and manage effectively. Hmm. Is that personal experience that you're talking about there, doctor? That's from living near a few major cities and trying to buy uh, property near them. You, you pick up on this donut effect uh, <laughs> all across the country. Um, so... I guess what, as, as you, you know, bring out your crystal ball and imagine, you know, lots of people talk about 2050 and, you know, as, as sort of a target and there are other targets. It's, it's just one that's easy for me to remember. Um, and what, if, if you could talk to incoming undergraduates and try to encourage them into this, what I think is the, the promise of forage agriculture, ruminant animal agriculture, and meeting the needs of today's world and tomorrow. What, what sorts of things might you want to convey to them to consider as they're starting their collegiate career and maybe think about a profession? I think uh, the first thing I would tell them is if you want to have a successful career, whether <laughs> that that be an industry, and I don't know if you are you re referring to industry here or just in agriculture in general. Yeah, anything. Be willing to move. You know, I, I think that's one of the things I see with uh, up and coming um, students is they they want to get an ag degree and they want to stay. They don't want to move. They don't want to get out and and experience the other areas of the country that maybe they have a skill set that's that's better suited for. Uh, you know, that's that's for sure. Um, I think the other thing I would encourage them to do is to be a little bit more. Uh, how should I put it? Multidisciplinary 
in their approach to their education. Um, I see this all the time, but you'll have students that that'll go through and they may specialize in soil science. And you may have someone that comes in and they, they specialize in animal reproduction. However, you start putting those people in a situation where now they have to take into account the forage, the animal, and they, they tend to, to, to kind of fall apart. They throw up their hands and like, whoa, whoa, you know, I specialize in this particular area. I think it's important for more of a systems approach um, by, by students in, in the future. Being too specialized in agriculture, it doesn't always pan out. Having a lot of tools in your tool belt, uh, I think is, is also critical. Um, and another thing I would, I would try to impress on them is there's a, there is a growing number of people in rural America that look at new practices, especially the ones that are, you know, kind of favor environmental um, benefits. They're viewed as very liberal uh, <laughs> practices that they don't want to be associated with. And if we look at the way agriculture is headed, I think we need to be a little more open to um, certain aspects of agriculture that may be shifting away from the, the more conventional um, type management. And I'll just throw one out at you, and, and, and this is something I think it's going to be big in, in the coming years, is carbon farming. Uh, people might look at that to be a very liberal, um, uh, a liberal practice. And it's, it's absolutely fine to, to look at it and say, this is, this is an opportunity for me to, um, to, to support my, my, my family farm, my business, and to take better care of the land through these programs. And so I think they're going to see opportunities in the future to kind of take on um, new uh, business opportunities for their, their ag operations. And they have to be very careful not to let political views uh, skew them in the wrong direction <laughs> and have them forfeit an idea. Because I, we, we are moving. We are moving in a direction where we want to take better care of our, our streams. We want to take better care of our soil resources. We want to cut down on, on inputs um, in the land overall. And I think it's important that they be receptive for it. And, and even and at the college or even when they're taking classes is to look for classes that'll help them better understand those particular systems. Good. Um, Scott, we've spent close to an hour now. I've been asking you a bunch of questions. Um, it's only fair to open myself up to any questions that you might have for me. I, well, I have a, a great question for you, and I'm sure I know the answer to it, but uh, I will be uh, starting a podcast along with my uh, counterpart, Jeff Clark, and we are going to do a, um, um, a podcast special on nutrition and the role of uh, beef in a, in a healthy diet. Hmm. You and think I you know anybody love, to <laughs> I would love to have you come on and uh and you know give us your take and maybe give some producers some tools to help them um help them kind of uh I guess push back some of the negative 
comments that they tend to get um, in, in their operation. So I know uh, we would we would love to have you. <laughs> I'd be honored. Uh, I'd be more than happy. Uh, welcome the opportunity. Oh, great. And I guess the other question I have for you, um, you have a, I know that a lot of your, your listeners um, are more on the nutrition side. And I guess I, I would like to get your perspective on what is the view of animal production, I guess, from a lot of the people that you, that you interact with on a, um, you know, weekly basis? Um, I think... Not surprisingly, most people don't have that tie to agriculture today or even a generation ago. So there's there's a lack of understanding or it's been informed by more recent sources that tend to not always be conveying accurate information. So... You know, wherever we heard it from, we heard it, so that's what we think, and now we've got to kind of unlearn that to a certain extent. Um, I think that, and you could name just, I, I mentioned one earlier that, you know, the cow spends its whole life in a cage, right? Um, and corn-fed means they eat nothing but corn, and that... You know, the, the, the people engaged in farming and ranching are not concerned with animal welfare. And a lack of awareness of the difference between animal welfare and animal rights. And, you know, all these things, frankly, I think those of us associated with animal agriculture haven't done a good job of telling our story. I understand why. And not everybody's equipped or desired to get into that arena. I get it. But um, at the same time, I think we in forage animal systems have the best story to tell, and we must get better at telling it. Um, you know, I, 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 I mentioned this before, but just toward the end of last year, I think it was, a paper came out of a group in Brazil, this livestock cropping systems um, effort. Um, and what they documented in their research was, we have a system, we're growing grass, grazing cattle, then we take that land, we put it into soybeans. It's more efficient use of the fertilizer to put it on the grass than to put it on the soybeans, which is what everybody does now. Mm -hmm. And maybe they put some on the grass. Um, and what they found was they got just as high a yield on the soybeans if they put all that fertilizer on the grass and didn't put any on this because of what's going on with the cycling and the proper grazing management. So now we've got a story that says from the same amount of land, we can produce more feed, food, sorry, food, um, with the same or less inputs. And then whatever benefits accrue from having a grass stand on that soil, we also get. I, I just we've we've got to get better at telling the good stories because I, I just think um, there are voices that are very interested in opposing 
animal source food production and consumption. And part of my message to various groups within animal agriculture is some think that because I practice this form of management, it puts me in a different category from somebody that as far as these opponents are concerned. And I'm trying to tell them, nope, it doesn't matter to them. What matters to them is that you're producing animal sourced food, period. They don't care how. And if you think what you're doing buys dispensation from them, um, I'm afraid you're mistaken. And meanwhile, we're dividing ourselves and there's not enough of people in animal agriculture to, to afford that kind of division. The other thing that I try to tell people is I, I'm, I'm very tired of us and them, although I just sounded like I was talking that way. So <laughs> work in progress. But um, I think it's all us. We're all concerned about the same things. We just see them differently. Um, and, and one of the lines I heard from one rancher, and she's like, I, f I feed my beef to my family. So you think, right, that I'm doing something that would harm my family? Do you really think that? I mean, are, are we willing to so throw out everything we know about maternal behavior and instinct that we accept that? As, and, and when we can get people connected with each other, I think a lot of this stuff just goes away. It's when we're separated that we can imagine all kinds of things that's hard for us to imagine once we've met each other and maybe even, you know, shared some time at a table over a nice T-bone or something like that. So, well, you know, I would, uh, I would put out a challenge to you and, and, and uh, the people who follow your podcast uh, that if you ever find yourself in an area where, uh, you know, myself or my counterparts can ever take you onto an operation and we can just spend a day of understanding the systems that, uh, you know, I know I am certainly game for that and uh, would, would welcome a field trip. So <laughs> these days, wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly would. Except maybe in this weather, but it'll pass. Um, so will everything else. Scott, thank you so much. It's it, uh, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to see each other in person um, earlier last month, um, soon, hopefully. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Peter. And uh, if you have any questions about uh, what Corteva does, if you'll go to rangeandpasture.com and uh, look up our products and what we're all about, we would, we would certainly appreciate it. So thank you.